Good morning, gang. It's good to be with you this morning. Hey, let me pray for us, and then we're going to go ahead and jump in. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just uh, your word, and we thank you, Lord, for our time together. I pray, Lord, that you would um, just help us, Lord, to honor you in all that we do and say. And uh, Lord, uh, help us as we study your word um, to, to understand it and to be able to apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Um, it's no secret uh, that as Americans, we oftentimes can struggle uh, financially. It's no, it's no secret that oftentimes we can uh, struggle to, to, to save, struggle to see how work connects to our worship. Um, and it's even difficult if we kind of miss the first two things, it's really difficult for us to even understand, hey, what the purpose of finances is is in our lives. And so over the last handful of weeks, we have been talking through just a message series called Money Matters. And uh, in week one, we talked about what it looks like to, to just uh, trust the Lord with the work of our hands and to know that the Lord has given our hands for the purpose of producing wealth. And uh, week chapter two, we talked about what it looks like to use our hands to do honest work, to not... Um, to, to not miss the opportunity that the Monday through Friday or whatever your work schedule is, to see that as an opportunity to do excellence in all things and all things for the glory of God. And then last week, we talked about what it looks like just to save. And this week, we're going to be reminded of why we do those things. And Paul writes to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28, and this is what he says. He says, let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to what? <coughs> Share with anyone in need. I'm good to know y'all are with me already. We're starting out great, okay? so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. So we work diligently with our hands. We do honest work so that we'll have something to share with anyone in need. Well, last week we talked about Paul uh, riding to the church of Corinth and it was around 53 to 54 um, AD that, that Paul wrote to the church of Corinth. And this is what he's encouraged them to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. He said, hey, listen, I want you on the first day of the week to set something aside for the purposes of helping the church in Jerusalem. Uh, the church in Jerusalem had had many hardships and trials. They had famine that hit the land. And as a result of that, they were living as an impoverished people. And so Paul writes to the church of Corinth and he goes, listen, on the first day of the week, which is a Sunday, everybody say Sunday. He goes, I want you to set something aside. And he goes, and when you do that, you need to know that it's going to be for the contribution of the church of Jerusalem. We're going to help them. Now, here's what we determined last week. We determined last week that savings is wise. We determined that frivolous spending is foolish. We determined last week as a result of Paul that, hey, savings is so should be consistent. Like Paul says, do that on the first day of the week. What's interesting is, is Paul, when he was telling the church of Corinth in 1 Corinthians 16 to set something aside, he didn't tell them what to set aside. So we determined last week, hey, savings is really up to you. Like it's not to be done under compulsion. There's not a set guide. Like you have to determine with freedom to what you're going to save. And so you have to determine that. But we saw those things. Well, here's the deal. Here's what I want you to do. Today, I want you to see how these things correlate together. That just as you would think about savings is the way that you should think about contributing to others in need. 
I like to call that generosity or giving. And so today, let's read, uh, if you got your Bibles, about what happens with the church of Corinth. He says, hey, I want you to set something aside, store it up, put it in a coffee can, save up because I'm going to come and get it. Well, a year later, that time comes. And Paul writes about it in his second letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9. He, the time has come. And so we'll read that together, beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. This is what Paul is going to say. Now, interesting enough, when he deals with this topic, he's going to give them two examples to help kind of drive the point home on why generosity is important. He says this, Hey, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given or has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Now, Macedonia is a region um, that is encompassing several different churches. Uh, Philippi is there, Thessalonica is there, Berea is there. These churches um, have contributed to being generous. And Paul says their generosity is the grace of God. He goes on and he says, For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, if you remember, we discussed last week, Jerusalem had been hit by a famine and difficult times. As a result of that, the Macedonians, who Paul says here, um, have had a severe test of affliction, um, they're extremely impoverished. They are dealing with poverty. He says, it is them who stepped up to the plate to deal with what's happening in Jerusalem. Now, that's what's incredible. A severe test of affliction. What is that? Uh, well, if you go back in the history, uh, the Macedonians were conquered by Alexander the Great, three, 336 BC. Um, after Alexander the Great, there was other hardships. Eventually, Rome comes in, and Rome is under control of Macedonia at this point in time when Paul writes. That means they're already impoverished because the last several hundred years, they hadn't been able to get it together. And now they're also highly taxed. And so as a result of that, what Paul is saying, hey, the Macedonians are, they're very poor. And when he says in their extreme poverty, in the Greek, it literally means they have nothing. So this is a people who are destitute, who have nothing. And yet it's in their nothingness that somehow they've gathered a wealth of generosity on their part, the end of verse two. So it just begs the question, how do they have an abundance of joy in the midst of extreme poverty? Some people would say that money makes you happy, right? Money might make you happy, but can money produce an abundance of joy? No, the Lord can. And can the Lord produce in you an abundance of joy even when you don't have what you want? Yes. I think about Jesus and the widow's might. Do you remember um, how Jesus was impressed with this widow who gave all that she had? And so that's the example of the Macedonians. He goes on in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, though, verse 3. He says, For they gave according to their means. Uh, and he goes, And I can testify... They, they gave beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Here's what Paul is saying. He goes, hey, Corinth, 
If you need a really good example of generosity, he goes, let me point you to the Macedonians. The Macedonians have nothing, but yet in their nothingness, they have found great joy in generosity. And not only are they giving, but they're giving out of the abundance of their poverty and extreme poverty, an incredible amount of, of needs are being met. And he goes, and even as we're talking to them, he goes, they continue to give. So it's almost if Paul goes to the church uh, of Macedonia in that area, he goes to Thessalonica, he goes to Berea, he goes to those areas and he goes, hey, listen, the, the church in, in Jerusalem has some needs. Can you meet them? And they go, absolutely. Not only will we meet them, but here's a little extra. And Paul goes, no, 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 I don't, I don't, we don't need all that. And they go, no, no, listen, you need to take it. And not only that, but here's more. It's as if this, this church, this area of church in Macedonia goes, hey, we, are, we delight to give more and more and more. But then you've got the church in Corinth. And what's interesting is, is that a year earlier, they told Paul, we'll give to this. And now it is they're backing out on the deal. They're, they're trying to renege. Have you ever done that? You made a commitment. Yeah, hey, I'll do this. And then you renege on the deal. Anybody raise your hand? Um, back in the day, and, and some churches still do this, but uh, there would be, say, building fund campaigns, or uh, maybe you've been to churches where um, if you grew up in Catholicism, maybe they wanted, a, they wanted a commitment early on in the year. They wanted to know what you're going to give so they could base their budget on it. Have you ever wrote down on an envelope what you will give and then never gave it? That ever happened? That's the church of Corinth. They basically said, hey, we'll, we'll be a part of it. A year later, they're, they're backing out on the deal and Paul's writing and his example is, hey, look at the Macedonians. They have nothing. They are literally extremely poor. You look at a poor person, well, look below because below the poor person is someone who's really, really poor. And he goes, that's the Macedonians and they continue to give eagerly. We can't stop them from giving. And he goes, that's example number one. They give according to the grace of God and even above their means. He goes on in the latter part of verse five, he goes, it's by the will of God they do this, verse six. And accordingly, he says, we've urged that Titus, that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and also in your love, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Which then begs the question, what in the world is he talking about? Well, here's what he says. He goes, hey, Titus is on the way. And, and Titus has been encouraged that just as he's gone collecting at other churches, he should come there and encourage you guys to do what you said. He's basically saying you should let your yes be no, yes and your no be no. If you said yes, you need to complete this act of grace. And then the, it seems that he's answering almost maybe an argument. And the Corinthian church might make the same argument that you and I have met. Have you ever made the argument, well, pastor, I really don't feel like I need to give financially because I give of my time. You ever said that? Or I, I don't have a lot to give financially, so I'm just going to give of my treasure. Like I'm just going to give of my talents. I'm going to give of, and so in some ways we categorize what our giving should or shouldn't be. And maybe it's like, you know, I'm going to give this area and I'm going to, I'm going to donate my time here, but I can't donate my money. I've had that conversation with people over the years. But if you look what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 7, what does he encourage? He goes, look, you should excel 
in everything. So he goes, yes, in faith. You should grow in faith. Should you grow in speech? What does he say? Yes, you should grow in the way that you, you let your, your speech be seasoned with salt. Like, yes, absolutely. You should be wise in what you say. Should you grow in your knowledge? Yes. Should you grow in earnestness? Yes. Should you grow in your love? Absolutely. So he goes, okay, great. If you're going to grow in love and knowledge and grace and earnestness, and you're going to grow in all these other things, he goes, then you should also grow in your giving. Do you see what he does here? He goes, you need to know that your generosity is as important as your knowledge. Yes, you would say, oh, well, I love others. And he is saying, well, if you love others, then excel in being generous through your love. And that's his point. So when he says complete this act of grace, he's saying, look, the Macedonians have nothing and they give out of an abundance of joy more than they have. We've, we've had to tell them to, to slow down in which they say, no, we want to do this. This is something we're honored to do. Then he goes, and we're having to beg you along. And then the conversation might go like this. Well, listen, I know we were going to do this, but right now we're working on our knowledge and we got some other things that are trying to grow our faith. And I mean, we're working on some conduct and other spiritual matters. And Paul is saying, listen, if you're working on all those things, then go ahead and add this one to the list. Because you, you can't be someone that loves God and then isn't generous. And you might go, well, I, how do you know that? Well, listen, I'm going to show you a couple of things. One, Paul's going to move from the, from the church of Macedonia to another example here in just a second. But if we don't just take Paul's words for it, let's look what John the beloved disciple says about it. He says this in 1 John chapter 3, verse 16 through 18. He says, by this, we know love, that he laid down his life for us. That's Christ. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then he says this, but if anyone has the world's goods, what are the world's goods? Stuff. Uh, the $37.5 billion worth of stuff we put in storage containers, as we discussed last week, that stuff. If you've got that stuff, the world's goods, and you see a brother who's in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. John goes, listen, it's impossible for you to say you love God and you've got the world's stuff, and you don't give it when you see needs. Now, you may be here, and you go, well, I don't have that much of the world's stuff. Let me just inform you real quick. If we were to take all the nations of the earth, and we were to bring them right here, you are among the top 1% wealthiest people that's ever lived on planet earth. And you say, well, listen, you don't, I mean, I just have a part-time job, and it's not even paying that well. You are among the 1% wealthiest people on the entire planet that's ever lived among all the years of living. That's an amazing thought. If you were born in the States, you have a place to park your car that's bigger than most people's homes, you're wealthy. You have the world's goods. What are you doing with the world's goods? Well, John says, if you have the world's goods and you don't help someone, then you're not an example of what Christ is. Flipping back to uh, the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, he just says, Paul then says, look, I'm not saying this as a command, but that you would prove by the earnestness of others that your love is genuine. So he's just going to look, 
If you love God, then he goes, you'll be generous and you'll keep your word and you'll do what you said you would do. That's what Paul is saying. It reminds me of a story uh, that is true, by the way, that Charles Spurgeon was a famous preacher, uh, was approached by a gentleman who had a rural church that he was helping lead. And he was just a member of that church, but he uh, he sent a letter to Spurgeon and basically said, hey, listen, we have a church building and it's not paid off yet. We have debt still on it. And he, he made a, an, a, a basically uh, an approach to Spurgeon through letter and says, hey, would you please come and you preach a message? And when people come, we will we'll take an offering and that offering will help pay off our building. Now, the gentleman made a mistake because in that letter, he invited Spurgeon not only to come and preach because the masses would come and hear and they could raise money, but he actually invited Spurgeon to stay at his townhouse, at his country house, or his seaside home. And to which Spurgeon replied through letter and said, I will not come be, I will not be coming to speak at your church. And by the way, if you would sell one of your three homes, you should pay the debt yourself. And their thought process that Spurgeon was trying to help is like, hey, you were among the world's wealthiest people, and yet you're not taking care of the very needs in front of you. And just as Spurgeon was trying to help this gentleman compute this, Paul is saying the same thing to the Corinthians. He's going, listen, you want love and grace to abound in your lives? Then he goes, take what the Lord has given you and keep your commitments. Be generous. That's what love is. And he begins to expound on that. But listen, he doesn't just stop with one example of the Macedonians. He's going to up the ante. Look what he says in verse 9. For you know that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. This is what I like to call a Jesus juke. You know what a Jesus juke is? It's like, it's like what my mom used to do back in the day. When I would say something, I would talk back to her, or I'd say something about somebody else, and she would go, Brandon, that's not very Christ-like. And to which my response as I got older was like, well, I'm not trying to be Christ-like. I'm, you know, I'm like, that's my point. It used to irritate me because what she would do is she would basically go, hey, son, you're not living like Jesus. And look, when you're not living like Jesus, you don't really want anybody to point that out. Do you know that? That's just the way we're wired. Um, well, that's what Paul is doing. And he doesn't just say, hey, here's the Macedonians. And by the way, they're whooping you and giving. They got nothing to give and they outgive you who've got everything to give. But then he goes to the Jesus juke and he goes, listen, and then there's Christ, the one who for your sake left the heavens and came to the earth and was tempted in every way. And yet, though he was tempted, he never sinned. And he died on Calvary's cross. And right, like he became poor for your sake. And he, he's just kind of building this case. Look what Christ did for you. He became poor. He gave his life. He died. What are you doing? Do you look like the Christ? That's his question. And then he says this, and in this matter, I give my judgment. He goes, this benefits you. Who a year ago, there's your answer. How do I know that it was a year earlier? A year ago started not only to do this work, but also had a desire to do it. So now finish doing it well. He goes, you were eager. That first Sunday, you started to put something aside. 52 weeks later, well, you're looking into your piggy bank and you're thinking, you know what? I could give this to the church of Jerusalem 
or man we do we need a new we need some new farm equipment oh what do i do do i take i'll tell you what i'm gonna i'm just gonna take half of this and i'm gonna give it there and then i'm gonna, I'm gonna keep half of for, for the farm equipment do y'all ever have that wrestle that's the wrestle hold on you said you were gonna do this you were eager to do it 52 weeks later, you've got an abundance of needs. You've got the needs in Jerusalem. Ah, oh, that's a little ways off. You can't really feel it. Feel, feel a little indifferent towards it now. The felt need you have right now is you're tired of plowing the field yourself. Why don't we just go get something to plow out for us? See the point? So you start reneging on the matter. So he says, so now finish doing it well so that your readiness and desiring it may be matched by... You're completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I don't mean that others should be eased and you should be burdened, but as a matter of fairness, you and your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need that there may be fairness. Now, as you read that, I'm like, that seems really confusing. But here's what Paul is saying. He goes, I get the argument. You're going to give to them and you have more to give. And you could easily say to yourself in your mind, as you look into your coffee can that you've been setting aside things for the last 52 weeks, you could say, well, why am I going to give it to the church of Jerusalem? And I get it. They have needs. But if I give them everything I've collected, then they're not going to have to do hard work. They're not going to have to do honest work. And I would in some ways enable them and they wouldn't be honoring God because if I gave them everything I had, then in a lot of ways, well, then that would not make them lazy. Sounds like a really interesting excuse, right? But that's what's going on. And Paul's saying, I get it. You're going to say, well, is it fair? Because that's socialism. And, you know, it's not... It's not okay for, for you to take from the rich and give to the poor. And so that's the conversation. And Paul's saying, well, why don't we look at it a little differently? Okay, you're going to help them financially, and they're going to help you spiritually. So you're going to give to them and out of your abundance of need financially. And since they are the epitome of what the church should look like, let's learn from them spiritually. And he goes, we'll just have a trade-off. You help them financially, and they'll help you spiritually. Paul says at the end, we all win, don't we? We help out of the abundance of our needs and they help out of the abundance of your needs. And that's the conversation. And to which then Paul kind of concludes this thought with an interesting statement. He goes to a throwback back into Exodus chapter 16. And this is how he closes this thought. He goes, as it's written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. And when you read that, you're like, I don't even know what that means. Well, this audience would have known what it meant. And here's what he's referring to. In the Old Testament, when Israel was brought out of 400 years of bondage, God led them through the wilderness. And do you know, do you remember what God provided for them every single morning? Manna. Everybody say manna. Yeah, yeah this ordinary bread that was wafer-like, sweet like honey, but they got tired of really quickly. Do you know what they did or were tempted to do early on in the process? Store it up. God told them, Moses, tell the people, go get what you need for the day. And what would they do? 
They'd go get what they needed for the day, and then they'd look around and go, but man, I might need an afternoon snack. And what if God doesn't provide tomorrow and you go get some for tomorrow too? And they, if he doesn't show up three days from now, like, hey, we got to have some for the week. And they would begin to hoard it up. And what would happen to the manna by the end of the day that they hoarded up? It would rot and ruin and maggots would be in it. And it was a reminder to the people of Israel, hey, listen, I am your provider. Get what you need to be content and don't get any more else. That's it. Just get what you need. I'll provide more for you tomorrow. Why does Paul say that here? He tells the church of Corinth, listen, if you're going to be the church, then he goes, remember that you set something aside to help others in need and trust God with the rest. Like trust God that he's going to help you in this process. Yes, you may be struggling in knowledge or in faith or in virtue. You may be struggling in love. You might be struggling in some of these ways, but practice this through your generosity and watch and see how the God supplies your need. And he goes, if God supplies the needs of Israel and they have to learn that abundance is not always best, then he goes, why don't you test the theory as well? Just get what you need and trust that the Lord will provide everything else. Does that make sense? That's what's happening here in this letter, which as I look at these things, here's what I know. If last week we talked about savings being wise, Paul is making the, church, the case to the church of Corinth here that giving is wise. That's what he's saying. So that's point number one. Point number two, you can clearly see in verse 15, he's saying, hey, if it was foolish for them to collect more manna than they could eat, it's also foolish for you to hoard. So point number two, if giving is wise, hoarding is foolish. If foolish isn't a strong enough word for you, then you could write another word that I like better, stupid. Hoarding is stupid. Now, you might not believe this, but Paul's going to continue this thought. Now, he's going to continue this thought, and if you think about this letter, he doesn't just stop here and then move on from it. Here's what he does. He goes, listen, the Macedonians, are, they're making you look foolish. Jesus, the Christ, became poor for your sake, that you might become rich. Do what you said you would do. That's what he's saying. Then he takes a little bit of time and, and to con conclude chapter eight and enter into chapter nine, he goes, by the way, Titus is coming. I already told you that, but you need to know he's on his way. And when he gets there, you need to know in advance that I've already told Titus that you're going to keep your word. I've already told Titus, listen, I, they're good for it. I know, we're, I know there's a little hesitation, but I'm telling you, they're, they're good for it. And then he tells the church of Corinth in 2 Corinthians 9, he goes, don't embarrass me. Don't make me look like a fool. You better do what you, you said you'd do. Y'all get the point here? So at this point, just like Americans are mad at pastors uh, because they talk about finances, I presume to believe the church of Corinth was a little frustrated with Paul. That, that's probably true, right? But Paul's just saying, listen, you said you would do it. Please do it. Because if you don't, then you're going to make me look foolish and you're going to be foolish in sight of the Lord as well. Then you see in verse 6 of 2 Corinthians 9, he goes, then here's the point. And he goes, here's the point. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And he just does a farming principle. 
And now here's the deal. A lot of us don't farm, but maybe you have your own garden. Um, how do you, if you have your own garden, have plenty to share? You plant more. That's it. Simple, simple concept, right? Plant more. So maybe right now you have a couple of containers and a little bitty garden. Next year, you're like, you know what? I need a little more for my family and I want to share with my neighbors. You double it. That's a really simple concept, isn't it? That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6. Here's the point. If you, suppose, if you sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Simple farming principle. You want to have more, you got to put more seeds in the ground, which simply means, hey, your giving ought to be consistent. Because here's the question. If you're going to put more in the ground, how often do you put them in the ground? Do you only plant a spring garden if you're living on the farm? No. Do you know there's ample times in the year to plant? Right now is a decent time. You might have missed the window a little bit, but it's a great time. There's, there's lots of things that you could be putting in the ground right now that will get you through winter. Now, what's interesting is, is just as your savings is consistent, your giving should be too. You ought to be giving off of the abundance of the crops that are coming your way. Now, I get it. You're thinking about seeds and crops, but let's just think about Benjamins, okay? Um, as, as, as you have Benjamins, you ought to think about how I keep a few Benjamins, and then I also... What? Sow some Benjamins. And you might ask the question, well, why would I do that? Well, verse 7 says, well, the reason you do that is so that you would, or verse 6, the end of it, is so that you would reap bountifully. Now, here's the point. If you're going to reap bountifully, you got to put a lot of seeds in the ground. And that's the key. Paul's going, look, you want to be a good steward. You want to enjoy the harvest. Then he goes, you got to, you got to put some seeds in the ground to do that. And the more seeds you have, the more bountiful it'll be. But then he takes a quick shift and he goes, now, when I'm talking about this, verse seven, each one must give as he's decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. So what does Paul say? He says, there's freedom in determining what you give. Did he do the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 when he says, hey, put some money aside? Yes, he didn't tell him what to put aside. So just as there's freedom in what you should save, there's also freedom in what you should give. Now, I get it. You grew up in a church and you're like, okay, well, I thought I was supposed to give 10%, pastor. I've heard that all my life. And I would just say, show me where. Show me where. Now, I get it in the Old Testament. You see clearly that there's a tenth that's talked about as Israel was encouraged to give a tithe, a tenth. What were they giving a tithe on? Their first fruits. So what were the first fruits? Their crops. So they would get a crop and they would have wheat and barley and they would bring it as a first fruit. And that's what they would do. They were to bring a tenth. But the question is, is, okay, what about us now? Well, here's what Paul says. All of us should give as we've decided in our heart to give. So that means we should give. Y'all agree with that? That's just what the scripture says. Now we know we shouldn't give reluctantly or under compulsion. So reluctantly means we shouldn't look at our coffee can and say, you know what? Oh, I'm only going to give 50% away to them because I got 50% I got to work on my tractor. So he goes, you got to work out the reluctancy issue. But he goes, also make sure that you're not giving under compulsion, which means you should beware of a church that encourages you to take off your watches and put them in the plate. You should beware of a church that guilts you into giving. Now, if you're here, I get it. You're like, well, they're talking about money. Listen, we don't talk about money enough here, ever enough. And, and if you feel guilted into something today, then I would love to sit down with you and just tell me, hey, where did I go wrong in guilting you? Because at this point, just so we're clear, I haven't asked any of you to give 
to our local church. Is that, have y'all heard that? Some of you are like, oh, I don't, I mean, no. Like, have I asked anybody to give to our local church? No, all I'm establishing is, is that giving is a means to reduce things that benefit the Lord in his kingdom, right? And if you agree with that, then the question is, is, okay, then what's the dilemma? The dilemma is, do I give under reluctance or do I give under compulsion? So if you feel guilted by something today, then that's what you would call compulsion. Now, here's the deal. I, as an elder of our church, have a warning in 1 Peter chapter 5 to not lead with compulsion, which means the goal for me today is not to get you to give more money. You know what my goal today is as a pastor, as a leader, as a shepherd of our flock here? My goal simply is that you would be obedient to God in whatever he calls you to do and that you wouldn't do it with reluctance. And that you wouldn't do it because somebody's telling you you got to do it. Because here's the deal. That's the wrestle. Uh, the wrestle is, is that we can walk out of this place and we can go, you know what? I know I ought to do this, but I'm reluctant to do it. And that's your issue between you and God. Or you can walk out of here and in your reluctance, you can do what Americans do and you can shift the focus. Instead of dealing with your reluctance, you make it your pastor's compulsion. And that's wrong. That's wrong. It's wrong to say the church is making me do this. If that's the case, you're going to the wrong church. That's the key. Does it make sense? But you got to wage war. It's like two kids in the back seat. They're squabbling. And one of them is clearly wrong but yet can't concede. You, you ever have that? That's happening in our backseat all the time. And they're like, hey, buddy, like if you would just throw in the towel, like if you just go, hey, look, right back here in the conversation, I got defensive and then, man, I altered course and then I picked up steam. Uh, hey, can I just back up and just go, you know what? I was wrong here. And will you forgive me? Like it could just be settled. But the problem is that's not how we deal with things, right? We feel a little reluctance. We get a little defensive. And then what do we do? We are classic BSers, blame shifters. You and I want to take the blame and put it on someone else. And here's the deal. Isn't it convenient that we would go to a church and hear a message about God's giving Macedonians who are poor and outgive Americans who are rich? And then hear about the salvation of God through his son, Jesus Christ, who became poor for your sake so that you might become rich in Christ. And then conveniently walk out and feel some conviction of going, you know what? I should be giving consistently. But he made me mad. And by that fact alone, I'm going to disobey God because a man made me mad. I don't know about you. But I would not want to disobey God because a man made me mad. That may be the most foolish reasoning of any of our reasoning. I'm not going to be obedient to my Savior because a man made me mad. Could, could the Corinthian church do that with Paul going, hey, man, don't be like the Macedonians. Could they have done that? Yes. Could you do that? Yes, can I do that? Absolutely. I promise you, friends, if there is a man in this room who has it in him in his flesh to do that, it's me. 
just because I won't give in to your compulsion. If it can happen to me, it can happen to you. Hey, be careful about that. Now, let's just talk real quick as we wrap up. What does God give or what does God love? A man who's decided in his heart what to give and who gives cheerfully. God loves a cheerful giver, which then begs the question, and maybe you haven't answered this for yourself. Hey, am I required to tithe? Do you know that Jesus only mentions the word tithe twice in all the Bible? He actually does so both times in some ways of a mocking fashion. Uh, one of those examples I'm not going to read to you. You can go read it yourself in Luke chapter 18. And that's the, is this a Pharisee where he, I mean, a Pharisee, a parable about a Pharisee and a tax collector. And the Pharisee goes to the temple and he's basically, I'm like, I'm God, God, I'm glad I'm not like this guy. And then he lists all the things that he does. And one of those things that he tithes, his meal, his uh, deal, his mint and his cumin. So that's one time that mentions. The other time Jesus mentioned it, he's saying, woe to the Pharisees. He's basically saying, be careful about those blind guides. In this particular text, he calls them hypocrites. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 23 and 24, this is what he says. And you're going to see where he says tithe, okay? The second time that he says it, he says this, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. For you tithe, there it is, that's a tenth, of your mint and your dill and your cumin. What's interesting about those, those are all pro produce. Y'all got that? Where do we get produce from? When we put seeds in the ground. You want more dill, mint, and cumin, how do you get more? You put more dill, mint, and cumin in the ground, right? So he goes, you, you tithe the tenth of those, but you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guys straining out the gnat and swallowing the camel. He goes, you guys are keeping the tithe. You want everybody to see what you bring into the temple, but you don't love nobody. And he goes, and that's a challenge. He goes, you ought to love people, but that demonstrates the, the character and the, the joy of God. And he goes, and don't neglect the giving. Now, the question is, is he saying that you should give 10%? And I would say, no. Matter of fact, if you were to read through the New Testament, you'll never see Jesus say, give 10%. Now, I think you can make the case that Jesus is always asking for exponentially more. Let me just give you a couple of examples. Um, I'm going to skip the example of John the Baptist. Let me just go to um, Luke chapter 19, verse 8. Uh, he went to Zacchaeus' house. Zacchaeus um, trusts in the Lord. This is Zacchaeus' response in Luke 19, verse 8. Zacchaeus stood and he said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my goods I'll give to the poor. Half. It's nowhere near to a tenth either. But he goes, and if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I will restore it fourfold, 80%. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 21, you might remember the rich young ruler who says to Jesus, hey, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? I've got all the law. I mean, I haven't disobeyed my parents. I haven't broken any of the commands. I mean, honor the Lord. I haven't stolen. I haven't cheated. I mean, I've done all these things. And then Jesus says, hey, that's great. Why don't you do one more thing? And in Luke 19, verse 21, Jesus says to him, the rich young ruler, he goes, hey, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. What does he say? I want you to go give all of it away. Now, what's interesting about Jesus and his teaching or even the teachings that you would see is there was always an exponential call on giving more. I think about the early church in Acts 2, verse 44 and 45. Look, listen to what it says. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions. That means they were unloading their U-Hauls and their storage buildings. 
and their belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Acts chapter four, I won't read it, but it says there was not a needy person among them. There were no widows or orphans that were in need. They were all taken care of. Now, why is that? It's because they gave out of the abundance of their need. And here's the deal. Listen, lean in with me. The early church was not asking the question, hey, how little can I give to God and still be obedient? It's not, hey, like, okay, there's a tenth, and hey, let me write my checkbook $177.31. I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching. I don't think that's what you see in the New Testament. What do you see? You see a means of grace. A means of grace means that you live by grace and through grace. Now, let me ask you a question. If you received a pardon when you have a death sentence, what would you give? I don't know about you, but I have a feeling that when I see Christ, I'm going to do this. And I think when I see him, I don't, I don't think I'm going to go, you know what? You know, where's my wallet? I, I mean, I, I don't, Lord, I think I gave way too much to you. Can you give me more in the kingdom? I don't think that's what, I don't think that's what the conversation is going to be like. I mean, what do you think the conversation is going to be like? Lord, you called me to be your disciple. You called me to give it all. Lord, I don't, I don't know that I gave it all. Isn't that true? And yet here it is, we, we argue over minutia. So pastor, are you telling me to, to tithe on the gross or the net? That's the wrong question. Just if I could be frank with you, the Lord is simply saying, Give out of your abundance and give cheerfully. And you may go, well, I don't give anything right now. Can I just tell you, if you don't give anything at all right now, will you do me a favor? Look right here at me. If you don't give anything anywhere right now, you're the Dead Sea, which means it dumps in and has nowhere to go. And right now you just hoard. You keep it all to yourself. Will you grab a shoebox out in the lobby and take your beautiful children with you and have them fill it up. And it could cost you 10 bucks or 50 bucks, or if you get carried away, which some of you do, it might cost you a little more than you want. But practice generosity. Why? Because the reality is, is this, our Lord owns the cattle on a thousand hills. If you believe that our church needs you, you're foolish. And do you know why? Because the Lord does not need me. There are many other qualified people to lead our church besides me. There's many of you in this room that would do an adequate job. We're all simply here to be his children as a means of grace, doing what he's called us to do. It shouldn't be with reluctance, making excuses for ourselves, and it shouldn't be under compulsion. It should be, Lord, I'm glad that I get to be a blessing today. And just as you should steward your finances well and save wisely, tip, just tip, put in, this is side note, extra. Budget, extra giving. Put an extra $100 or $50 or $25 so that you can send a young couple to get burgers 
and say, hey, I'm going to watch your kids. And here, by the way, here's 25 bucks. It might not buy you a milkshake, but by golly, it'll get you a couple burgers and fries. And bless a young couple. Maybe you have the means to do that and a little bit more. Maybe it's you're in the, the grocery store and you see a young family and they got diapers and they got formula. And, and you can just tell like, hey, they're making it. But like, man, we could really bless them right now. You know why you don't? Because you don't got it. But if you, if you already purposed it to go, you know what, I'm going to bless them with generosity, then you just go, okay, that looks like it's going to be about 100 bucks right there. I got it. Okay. And you just whisper over and just go, hey, I got all this. This, I got it. And they're like, what? I got it. What? I, I got it. Why not? See, that's what happens. Matter of fact, Paul goes on. I'm going to wrap up with this. He says, he supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increases the harvest of your righteousness. So he goes, hey, you want bread for next winter? You know how you have bread for next winter? You set seed aside. So can you imagine living in an agricultural community and you have to have this dilemma? Okay, Um, I can't go down to the hardware store and buy packets of seeds. So I got to save my own. And you got to think through, how do I get to the winter with the seeds I have, also enough seeds to plant next year's harvest? You know what that means? It means that you can't consume everything that the Lord gives you, right? It also means that you can't keep and store it all because you got to live on some of it. So then you ask the question, well, what am I to do? Well, here's the key generosity is just like farming. And that is the Lord gives us more so we can plant more. It's thinking through all those things. He gives you more so you can plant more. And then he says this in verse 11, and I'll wrap up with this. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So why is it that we give? So it produces thanksgiving to God. When we meet needs, praise proceeds. And point number five, and I'll wrap up this, that means your personal giving should be God-centered. It's God-centered. Yesterday, we sent um, about three dozen men out and we helped um, a young family in our church uh, clean some property. Um, We helped a a single in our church um, clean up her property. We helped two widows in our church clean up their property. And when you look at these properties, you wouldn't even recognize them. But what's interesting is, is that what's incredible is not that the property has changed. What's incredible is talking to each of these individuals And in many cases through tears saying, pastor, thank you so much. Like it's a blessing to be at a church where I feel cared for and praise proceeds. They're not just thanking me. They're like, the Lord is good because they had a need and it was met through the local church and it cost us very little monetarily. The reality is, is this, if you want to make a difference in your community, in your neighborhood, at your workplace, Stop being stingy and be generous. Why? Because the Macedonians were generous and they had nothing. And Jesus became poor for our sake so that we might have everything. And friends, you've heard the old country pastor at a funeral saying you can't load up a U-Haul and take it with you. And if that's true, then why don't we live like it? 
Now, in all of this, I want you to hear that's not necessarily for us. It's simply so that the gospel goes forth. When you plant seeds, the Lord is praised and is glorified, and you actually are refreshed yourself. Proverbs says, he who refreshes others, he himself is refreshed. Isn't there something that happens in us when we open our hands to be generous, that we're encouraged more almost than the person that we encouraged? How is that plausible or possible? Through the work of the Holy Spirit, when his people get to work. And so friends, may we get to work and may we see the needs and may we respond to needs. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this message and I pray, Lord, that you would just use it to spur us on towards love and good deeds. And I pray, Father, that just as we close, that, Lord, that you would help us to not put our hope in riches. Lord, help us to put our hope in Jesus who loves us richly. God, there is nothing on this earth that can give us value or satisfaction like you can. And I just pray that we would know that and experience that for ourselves. And I pray, Lord, that we would not be like the Dead Sea where everything flows and stops. But Lord, that we would be like the Jordan River, a life flowing agency. That Lord, as it comes to us, it goes through us. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't hoard it, but with open hands, we would become a generous people. Meeting the needs of others. Not asking the question, how little should I give? but exponentially year by year with each passing harvest, looking to see how much more we can give away. Would you help us? Because if not careful, we can become a rather stingy people. And we know you don't delight in that because you delight very clearly in those who give with a cheerful heart. In Jesus' name, amen.